Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's episode is a companion to our quarter close publication and one that I hope will become a part of your quarterly wrap-up routine. We're focused on bringing you the quarter's top news in standard setting, regulatory developments, and other focus areas in 20 minutes or less. We'll tell you what you need to know and then where you can go to find more information on each topic. Joining me remotely from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is Cody Smith, a partner in PwC's national office and editor of our quarter close publication. So Cody, thank you so much for joining me again today to do a Q2 roundup. I know this is the second time we've done this and when we did our first one at the end of March, who would have thought that we would still have another eventful quarter, that more would actually happen. But definitely looking forward to hearing the highlight points that we think people should be focusing on for their second quarter. But before we get into that, one of the areas we've talked a little bit more about recently in some other forms is standard setting. And I know the lot has happened and it's definitely an area people haven't had a lot of time to focus. So what can you share with us from a standard setting perspective? Well, Heather, I think probably the most recent thing that the that we have is that the FASB had a couple of Q&As that they came out with specifically to address the accounting challenges with COVID-19. Um, the first one that they came out with is on hedge accounting. And maybe just to recap uh, in hedge accounting, in a cash flow hedge, changes in fair value of the hedged instrument are deferred and accumulate other comprehensive income or AOCI until the forecasted transaction occurs. And then at that point, the deferred amount are recycled into profit uh, from the AOCI account. However, and the cash flow hedge is discontinued because it's no longer probable that the forecasted transaction will occur at the specified time that was originally forecast. And then there's also a, a two-month grace period that a company would have. So they could forecast when the transaction would occur, but they've got an extra two months to do that. And so if that forecasted transaction is not going to occur, then at that point in time, the amounts that are deferred are immediately cycled into earnings. The guidance, though, does recognize that in the rare cases where extenuating circumstances outside the control or influence of the company cause the forecasted transaction to be probable of occurring outside of that two-month grace period, uh, the amounts deferred in AOCI can continue to be deferred until the forecasted transaction occurs. So what this FASB staff Q&A does is it basically says that the COVID-19 pandemic may be considered one of those rare causes or extenuating circumstances outside the control of the company that caused the forecasted transaction to be deferred. And then the amounts can still stay in AOCI so long as that transaction is considered probable of occurring. So, Cody, I think this is very helpful for companies that to the extent the transaction is still probable, even if it's beyond the two-month period, then they do not need to de-designate the hedge. So, so very helpful. So then, Cody, though, one question for you that I know has come up is that to the extent that you do conclude it's no longer probable, does the fact that you missed your forecast impact your ability to apply hedge accounting in the future? No, Heather. The FASB staff also clarifies that if a company determines that the amounts deferred in AOCI should be reclassified into earnings, that those missed forecasts are not considered a pattern of missing forecasts that would call into question the company's ability to predict forecasted transactions in the future. Great. So then, Cody, I know that the FASB also issued some new guidance on leasing, and we've covered this in our webcast and a separate podcast, but can you give us the highlights for um, anyone who may have missed it? 
Uh, sure, Heather. So that's right. The second uh, staff uh, Q&A that came out from the FASB deals with leases and lease modifications. So as we know, because of COVID-19, uh, many lessors are providing lessees with rent concessions. And the rent concessions can come in a lot of different forms, such as deferral of payments or full or partial forgiveness of payments or extension uh, periods in which lessees uh, would have to make those payments. And so the question here becomes with the lease modification guidance and essentially whether or not the underlying lease had been modified when the lessor and lessee agree to the modification of terms uh, within that lease period. And those modifications aren't part, obviously, of the uh, initial uh, lease. And so what the FASB basically said that was due to the COVID-19 and the unprecedented number of leases that are going to have to be uh, modified when lessees are asking for immediate financial relief, that this wasn't really contemplated by the lease's guidance in ASC 842 that just came out. So what the FASB did was provide a little bit of relief here to lessors and lessees and says that either you can follow the lease modification guidance, considering it is a lease, or you can basically look at the lease payments um, as just adjustments to the schedule of lease payments and essentially not follow that lease modification guidance. So, Heather, the last thing to keep in mind with the FASB staff Q&A, that it's not a free-for-all on modification. So, essentially, what, what has to happen here is that the modified payment terms uh, have to be substantially the same or less than the original payment terms in order to apply the guidance in the, in the staff's Q&A. Great. Thanks, Cody. So then, Cody, I know another big change for the quarter was the FASB's delay of effective dates for the revenue and leases standards for certain companies. So can you provide the highlights on that? Sure, Heather. Um, it seems like ages ago when companies were adopting ASC 606 for revenue, you know, public companies adopted this back in 18, um, 2018 for calendar year-end companies. But there was a couple of deferrals that occurred and had pushed the guidance out for private companies and others that hadn't adopted yet until uh, calendar year 2019 and then quarterly beginning in 2020. The FASB began a project looking at franchisors and the upfront payments that are received by franchisors and the complexity around uh, applying ASC 606 to those payments. And then again, when COVID-19 hit, the FASB started receiving a lot of additional comments from other private companies that hadn't adopted yet because they were sort of getting hit from both sides where if they did do interim financials, that first interim period would be March 31, 2020, along with the annual financials for 2019. So the FASB recently decided to postpone the adoption of ASC 606 on revenue for all companies for an additional year. So they won't have to apply that until the end of this year, uh, 2020. Uh, okay, so Cody, that's definitely good news for some companies on revenue. And then how about on leases, which I know actually impacts more companies? Right. So with, with the leases, uh, as we know, public companies have already adopted the leasing standard uh, last year. This is the second year they're following it. And the FASB had previously granted an extension to the leases standard so that private companies would adopt that next year in 2021 after the FASB learned from what public companies had experienced with their adoption and held some public hearings and roundtables with those registrants who had already adopted and helped prepare private companies for adoption. Well, due to COVID-19, those public hearings have been postponed and companies have a lot of things on their plate. So the FASB went ahead and de deferred the leasing standard for private companies for another year 
So they for calendar companies, they won't need to adopt that till 2022. Okay, great. Definitely good news for those companies. So then let's turn our attention to the SEC, Cody. And I know that in May, the SEC issued some amendments to the Rule 305 disclosures, which affect companies' disclosure requirements for business acquisitions and dispositions. And this was also good news for many companies. So can you walk us through the highlights of the changes? So the disclosure requirements for acquired subsidiaries and disposed subsidiaries um, that's been on the SEC's plate for a couple of years to try to simplify that um, and make it more useful for investors. So they did come out with the final amendments to Rule SX um, 305 and what we affectionately refer to as the 305 financials for acquired businesses when they're when they're significant, and also Article 11 for the pro forma requirements that need to be met when there are significant acquisitions. So. The way that that guidance works is the financial statements that are acquired are based on how significant that that acquisition is to the registrant, and that's measured using three tests, um, an investment test, an asset test, and an income test. So with respect to the investments test, under the current investments test, you compare the investment made to the registrant's total assets. And so since total assets are a book value number and the investment that was just made is paid at fair value, it essentially can, what I'll say, inflate the significance of that investment when you're comparing apples to oranges and book value to fair value. So under the amended rules, what the SEC will allow is that you can compare the investment to the, the registrant's aggregate worldwide market value, uh, a new term that that's in that amended rule, um, which is generally the, the fair value or the market value of the registrant's voting and non-voting common stock. So that fair value number is usually a lot larger than total assets, and that might provide some relief to lower the, the significance. If the registrant cannot come up with its aggregate fair market value, because sometimes you'll have, say, a debt registrant where the, the shares don't trade, then it would be back to the total asset test that we have today. So the second thing that the SEC did was amended the income test. So the income test essentially compares the income of the registrant to the acquired business's income. So sometimes when the, when the registrant has break-even results, that income test can provide an odd answer, uh, making the the acquisition very significant when, in fact, uh, it may not be due to the abnormal results of the of the acquirer. So what the SEC did here is they added a revenue test or a revenue component to the income test where you can essentially pair the revenues of the acquired business to the registrant's revenue. And that will be done when there are material revenues. So if you had a startup entity or something like that with uh, without revenue, the revenue test could not be applied. You would just apply the income test. And um, and then with respect to those two, if both can be applied, you would take the income or the revenue test that had the lower uh, significance. And the last thing on the income test is there are some amended guidance that simplify other troublesome areas that we had on the plaster, things that would give strange results like income averaging and the use of absolute values when you had some years with a profit and some years with a loss. And then finally, with respect to the testing, the asset test stays the same. There were no changes to the asset test. Okay. And then, Cody, I know you've dealt with this a lot just in dealing with business combinations, et cetera, um, from your accounting side. But this looks like good news for a lot of companies that they won't get caught in this this net necessarily to have to make um, these disclosures. 
Yes, Heather. So with the income and the investment test, the simplifications that were made to those, those would think will generally have acquisitions and dispositions as being less significant. So what we're talking about with significance is how many years of financial statements do does one need for an acquisition or a disposition. And the changes to the in- income and, and investments test and how that measures that will generally require less financial statements. The other thing with respect to financial statements that they was changed is the significance themselves. So so today, for instance, uh, if an acquisition is in the 40 to 50% level, then two years of financial statements are required. And if an acquisition is greater than 50% significant, you would need three years of 305 financials for that acquired company. The rules also say is that two years will be the most uh, financials uh, that you will need. So for instance, when the new rules go into effect, any acquisition that's above 40%, uh, two years of financial statements would be all that would be needed. One last thing on the changes to the SEC rules. I understand there's also been some significant changes to the preparation and pro forma financial statements. So what's going on with that? Uh, That's right, Heather. So as we mentioned, the Article 11 pro forma financial statements have been changed too. And this was probably the most controversial part of the SEC's proposal. So today when we prepare pro forma financial information, that's typically a balance sheet and an income statement with the historical financials um, and then adjusted for the acquired or disposed business. And what proformers are trying to do is show how those financial statements might be affected by the acquisition or disposition, you know, had the transaction occurred at the beginning of, of the period. And specifically, the rules today, um, when it talks about making adjustments to those, those proforma financials, it precludes the inclusion of adjustments for potential effects of the post-acquisition actions expected to be taken by management. And so under the proposal, uh, what the SEC had was that the existing pro forma adjustments uh, would be replaced with simplified requirements to include, you know, first the disclosure of the of the transaction accounting adjustments, uh, which basically reflect the accounting for the transaction. And then there was a new category of management adjustments. So what the proposal said would be reflect the reasonable estimable synergies and transaction effects of things like closing facilities, discontinuing product lines, terminating employees, and so forth. So long as those were reasonably estimable and have occurred or are reasonably expected to occur. So that proposal brought a lot of uh, consternation amongst uh, people who commented on it. And it was, as I said, the most controversial part of the proposal. A lot of commenters opposed the inclusion because they thought they were too subjective and burdensome and they could uh, create liability uh, with respect to those types of disclosures. So other commenters uh, wanted those management adjustments because they thought it provided some flexibility for management to really show the reasoning for the acquisition through the accounting entries and the synergies and things like that that uh, were the reasons why the company made the acquisition. And so what the SEC ended up doing as a compromise is they basically made the inclusion of management adjustments optional. So, you know, in the words of the SEC and the amended guidance that management can include management adjustments if such adjustments would enhance or help with the understanding of the pro forma effects of the transactions. So maybe just to recap on the pro forma adjustments, now there's there's three types of adjustments. As we mentioned, there's the transaction accounting adjustments which reflect the application of the accounting for the transaction. And then there's now autonomous entry adjustments, which reflect the operations and position of the registrant 
as an autonomous entity, and these could be in such cases as if it was a spinoff of a previously larger company. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, we have management adjustments, which depict the synergies and dissynergies of the acquisition or disposition uh, for which the pro forma effect is being given. Okay, so Cody, that seems like a good compromise. And again, all of this is areas that for companies that are impacted, I definitely encourage them to check out the in-depth on these new rules, and they can get a lot more detail on all of this. So then, Cody, let's turn our attention with just some brief reminders on other things that companies should be thinking about as they face the end of the quarter, and maybe starting with the topic that I know is very near and dear to your heart, which would be impairment. So unfortunately, that's a topic we're continuing to talk about this quarter, uh, but I know there's some very specific things companies should consider. So where should they start? Yeah, so I guess with uh, impairments, there's been a lot of ink spilled on impairments in the last quarter or so. But the question that's coming up this quarter in Q2 is if you look at the stock market recently, um, you know, the uh, 50,000 foot level discussion is things have gotten better. Why would I have an impairment in Q2? And I guess it's just a reminder that, you know, even if the company is doing well, there, there may be pockets of the company. So reporting units or asset groups that are experiencing specific problems due to COVID-19. So it's really a facts and circumstances analysis. And it's not necessarily at a company level. It's down at the asset group or reporting unit level. The other thing is that in the last three months, we've learned a lot about COVID-19. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty there at the end of Q1 as to what the recovery was going to look like just in general. and as we said, companies are affected differently by what's going on in the marketplace today with COVID-19. So I guess the cautionary discussion here would be, don't be looking at the stock market necessarily and say it looks like things are getting better. It's really done at a lower level and it's facts and circumstances, and it just needs to be something that companies continue to think through. Cody, I know I picked out impairment, but if I look at our list of COVID-19 issues that we had in the in-depth and in our various podcasts, obviously, depending on the company, there's a wide range of items that they could be dealing with. So what would be sort of your number one piece of advice that you could give to companies as they're thinking about their filing for Q2? Yeah, Heather. So I think the number one thing to probably think about in terms of the filing is, I would say, the MD&A section. Because in management discussion analysis, that's basically where management can tell its story. So again, as I mentioned with impairments, all companies and different parts of companies are affected differently by what's going on with COVID-19. And this would be the place to do that, particularly what one might be looking at as the historical financials and how that's going to affect the future financial results. And as we've seen, as we get deeper into the COVID-19 and living our everyday lives and what we're seeing out there uh, on the streets, so to speak, is that Everybody's affected differently. Uh, states are different, uh, different types of businesses. And so what you're trying to do here in the MDNA section is say, here's specifically what happened. Here's how it affected the results. And then probably moreover, are those effects on the current period results expected to continue in the future for you know a long period of time? Or do we think that whatever business that company might be in, it'll be coming back soon and it's just a one-time event? So I think MDNA would be the place to try to explain all of that. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And I do think a lot of times MDNA is either sort of just a roll forward of the prior quarter with some updates or, or maybe done late in the process. And, you know, I think to your point, this quarter, that might be a good place to start just to really make sure you explain what's going on with your company. Exactly. 
All right. Well, Cody, Jesslyn gave us some things to think about for the quarter. And I know companies, are, you know, as we said, are coming from all different places. So for our listeners, I definitely encourage you to check out all of our various resources we have to consider as you close the quarter, including the quarter close and the various COVID-19 podcasts, as well as the COVID-19 in-depth and the CARES Act in-depth. Uh, but Cody, maybe to wrap up the podcast today, I think this is new from last time you joined us, but we're now ending each podcast with talking about silver linings from COVID-19. What is one of the things that's actually been positive from your perspective about some of the changes from COVID-19? Well, Heather, it may be too soon to tell, but um, last week for the first time in 31 years, I no longer have an office. Um, so now I'm basically just uh, living with a computer and a phone. So that's why I can sit here and do this podcast with you from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, in a hotel room. I do appreciate that you took time from your family trip to Iowa to join me today for this podcast. And uh, as always, appreciate your insight. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to uh, next quarter also. We'll have more interesting things to talk about. Uh, okay, great. Thanks, Cody. For more on what you need to know this quarter, check out our other quarterly offerings on cfodirect.com. You'll find publications and other information to help you as you close the books. Join me back here Thursday for another episode in our What's Next Summer series. We'll be talking about the ways to transform the finance function. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'd love to hear from you. So write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com or to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.